second section. The first section is what I suppose you could call some preliminary matters. But then the first major part of this section or of this letter begins at verse 18 of chapter 1. And uh, it continues down through the 20th verse of chapter 3. So we're coming to the end of this first section of this, uh, of this letter. And in this letter, Paul is, he's, he's telling us the gospel. He's telling us the good news, the, the good news, the glad good news. And he's writing to people whom uh, largely he does not know. We've said this before, but just to kind of get us caught up, they're both Jewish and Gentile in cultural and religious background. He's addressing both groups through this letter. And in this first part of the letter, what he's trying to do is press home to us. Uh, he's, he's seeking to press home to us that sin is a universal problem. It, it's a problem that affects all of us. And, and what, he's, what he's really pressing home here is not the problem of sins so much, but he's, he's wanting to press us beneath the surface and get us to understand that beneath the problem of sins, which is, you know, wrongdoing kinds of things, there is this deep and relentless impulse in each of our hearts. I mean, it's deep and relentless. Um, it's, you know, from Greek mythology, it's like the hydra. I mean, you whack one head off and seven grow up in its place. It just, you know, you just can't ever, you just can't ever kill this ugly thing. You know, there's this deep, relentless impulse in each of our hearts to dethrone God and to put something else on the throne. That's the essence of the problem of sin. It's, it's really idolatry. Now, he makes reference to, to creatures, to things that are uh, uh, the creatures God has made, birds, animals, reptiles, that sort of thing, in, uh, in verse 23 of chapter 1. But idolatries come in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> they come in all shapes and sizes. Um, there are idolatries that are very polite idolatries. There are even theological idolatries. There really are. They come in all shapes and sizes, as well as the less pleasant kinds of idolatries. The point is that we are God makers. That's what we do. That's what our hearts are prone to do. We're prone to craft gods, make gods, gods whom we will serve, whether gods of wood and stone or gods of beauty and sex or gods of bank accounts, money, power. We're we're just prone to make gods of things because we think that those things will do for us what God alone can do. And what Paul is trying to do here is help us to understand the nature, the nature of the human heart and what our real problem is. And in verses 18 of chapter 1 and following, he's just telling us that the wrath of God is being revealed against all of it, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And when he comes to chapter 2, he's turning his attention particularly upon the Jews. Um, again, it's a mixed crowd. It's Jews and Gentiles. And, and basically, the reason he has to kind of, he has to turn the laser on the Jews, if you will, the reason he has to turn the, the spotlight on the Jews is because the Jews really believed they were exempted from all of this. I mean, they, they look back across their history and they see Abraham and the promises made to Abraham and they see the covenants and all of the wonderful things that God has done and the fact that they have this unique ethnic kind of thing going on and they have the law and then they have this religious practice of circumcision, right? This external mark which differentiates them from everybody else. They, they look at all of these things and, and they think that they are exempted from the prospect, the possibility of God judging them. 
And Paul really has to press this thing home with these folks so they can understand, really understand, that God doesn't discriminate. He just doesn't discriminate. Isn't that, I mean, that's good to know, isn't it? There's lots of discrimination in our world, in our culture. Uh, it's good to know that there's somebody in the universe who doesn't discriminate. He loves people indiscriminately. That's a wonderful thing. But, but he is righteous indiscriminately. He is just indiscriminately. And his judgment is a judgment against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, by their idolatries. And he really wants to press this home to these Jewish listeners who have come to believe that their ethnicity or their possession of the law or the fact that they have certain religious practices has exempted them from it. Now, let's just put this in some good, good practical kinds of language and terms that we can understand. Basically, what Paul is saying is that being a good church attender, living a moral life, being baptized, these things, these things don't protect you from the wrath of God, the wrath and judgment of God. I mean, where he's going with all of this is right there. That's where he's going with all of this. He's, he's taking us to the cross, He's help, he's, he, he wants to help us to understand that there, he wants us to know, not just sort of help us to understand with our heads, but, but really know that there is one place of safety, one place of security in the whole universe as a holy and righteous God who takes all sin very seriously, is intent upon judging all sin. He wants us to know there's one safe and secure place to go, and that's the cross, where the wrath of God has been visited on somebody else so that you can be exempted from it. Being a good church attender doesn't exempt you. Being baptized doesn't exempt you. Keeping some sort of moral code doesn't exempt you. What exempts you, what frees you, what delivers you from the wrath of God is the cross where the wrath of God was visited on somebody else in your place so that you could be exempted from it. He's not there yet, but that's where he's taking us. And he wants to press home to us that whether Jew or Gentile, we are all, all faced with the same problem. Now, the obvious question from the Jews, from these Jewish listeners is, well, what advantage is there then? What advantage is there? And again, he tells them that the first advantage, the first great advantage for those who are Jewish at this particular moment in history is that they have been entrusted with the words of God. And the words of God, the oracles of God, the Old Testament, the the 39 canonical books from Genesis through Malachi, those, those books, those oracles of God, those words of God are filled with promises of redemption, promises of hope, promises concerning this one who would come to do this work. It is a a magnificent thing. It is a phenomenal thing. It is the blessing above every other blessing for you to have a Bible, for you to have a Bible. Now, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. I, I want to be kind. I want to be pastoral. I want to be sensitive. I want to be firm. Don't come here to learn your Bibles, meaning don't come here to this this 30, 35, 40, sometimes 45-minute little discourse to learn your Bible. 
Monday through Saturday, read your Bibles. I know they're hard to read. I know it's hard to understand. That's why you come here, because at least theoretically, I'm here to try to help you understand what it is you've read. But you've got to do the reading. You've got to do the work before you get here. God has given you this word. He's entrusted it to you. Man does not live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when you leave here, go home and eat. And eat Monday morning, and eat Tuesday morning, and eat Wednesday afternoon, and eat every day. And then we come together to try and understand what it is that we're reading. That's the great gift. That's the great blessing that God has given. And all of the other blessings, frankly, flow from it. I can't know about the cross apart from the word of God. I can't know about the nature and character of God, the purposes of God, apart from these 66 books. I'm stumbling around in darkness if I don't have God's word. So that's the great blessing. That's the first blessing. That's the first lesson learned. But here are some other lessons learned. Three more of them. Here's here's a second lesson that we learn as we listen to Paul interact with these listeners, these people who are hearing this letter read. The second thing we learn is this. The work of ministry is never finished. The work of ministry is never finished. My work is never done. The work of ministry is never finished. Now think about it. Look at this letter of of Paul, these 16 chapters. Challenging to read. Challenging to read. At points, very easy to understand. At points, very difficult to understand. Why was it written? Why did Paul write this? You want to remember that that at the time Paul writes this letter, sometime between 55 and 58 A.D., that's, that's about 25 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. A quarter of a century after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And in that same amount of time, in that same 25 years, or just about in that same 25 years, the gospel has been in Rome. Acts chapter 2 tells us that. Tells us that there were, there were people who were in Jerusalem at the time of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who after those events went back to Rome, and when they went back, they took the gospel with them. The gospel has been in Rome for 25 years. For 25 years. There are Christians all over the city who are gathering. They're gathering together for worship. There are seekers who are coming to those gatherings, seeking to understand more about the gospel. Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 1 that the faith of the Roman Christians has been proclaimed and is being proclaimed all over the world. Not only did they have the gospel, but they were sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, communicating the gospel, and people were hearing it. The gospel was in Rome. So why doesn't Paul, the great evangelist who's got plenty of work to do, right? It's a big world. Lots of nations and groups out there that need to be reached. Okay? No computers. No ways to broadcast this stuff. You've got to go on foot or by boat or hurry. You've got to get there somehow. You have to get to the places where the people are. There's a lot of work to do. Paul, the great evangelist, the great theologian of the gospel, why doesn't he write a short letter to these Romans and say, I'm glad to hear that things are going so well. I've got other stuff to do. I want to come and see you on my way to Spain, but I want to go on to Spain. Do you ever think about that? Why does he write this letter? Well, here's why he writes this letter. He writes this letter because, 
the real, pure, true, powerful gospel is always under attack. And the work of communicating it and seeking to refine our understanding of it and plumb the depths of it and seeking to apply it to the hearts, the minds, the lives of people who need to hear it, that work is never done. The pure, true, real gospel is always suffering. And it's suffering in two ways. It's always suffering from neglect and it's always suffering attack. Two different, two different ways in which the gospel is always under attack. It's under attack by neglect and it's under attack by positive assault. Think about it. Paul writes to the Colossians. Look at all these letters here. Right? What is he doing in all of these letters in Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians? What is he doing when he writes to Timothy and Titus? Paul is God's great gift to the church, uniquely prepared, uniquely gifted to be of help and encouragement to the church as it seeks to wrestle with the gospel, understand the gospel. He's writing all of these letters. Because these things are true, because, because it's so easy for us to neglect, to neglect and take for granted the real, pure, true gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 7, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. What is he doing? He's reminding the Colossians. You can read the letter, get the whole picture, get a little commentary. The commentary will help you understand it. What he's doing is writing to these Colossians because they've received the gospel but in very subtle ways, they've begun to take the gospel for granted and they're actually slipping away, slipping away from allegiance to it. And he writes to correct them. Galatians 3.3, 3, having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What's going on in Galatia? There's a more positive, overt attack from Judaizers, from Jewish believers who think that really the way you have to understand the gospel is, is yes, by embracing Jesus as Messiah, but before that, you've got to do some other things. You've got to keep the law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to do a bunch of stuff. And Paul is writing to correct these people, helping them to understand that you live the Christian life the same way you began the Christian life. You began in the Spirit. You continue in the Spirit. You began with the gospel. You continue with the gospel. You began with Jesus, you continue with Jesus. You never, ever get enough of Jesus. You don't move on from Jesus to theology. You don't move on from Jesus to moral codes. You don't move on from Jesus to higher, deeper religious experiences. It's always Jesus in all of his fullness. Numerous examples of this across the New Testament. But the point is simply Paul is writing this letter to these Romans because because of this first tendency, this first tendency very, very subtly to take the gospel for granted. That actually is what had happened with the Jews. That's some of what had happened with the Jews. They become complacent because of ethnicity, because they had the law, because they had religious practices. They'd become complacent complacent. 
We can't become complacent, folks. We cannot 